I sort of made this huge commitment to myself, the restaurant, everything, that we are just going to use the best produce. So then there was a transition with, with guests where um, guests, certain guests just didn't get it. And I, I was still learning to use this, this amazing produce and keep it simple, but still uh, tell a story on a plate and show technique on a plate that you couldn't produce at home. We continue our celebration of 500 episodes of Dirty Linen by creating a rounded portrait of a restaurant that's been a special place for Melbourne Milestones for more than 20 years. Shannon Bennett founded Vudemond in 2000 in Carlton, fresh from formative years in Europe and with a little bit of money saved from a detour into modelling. The restaurant made an instant impression in Melbourne as ha- and has continued to be an important place to consider when thinking about the pantheon of fine dining in this city and in Australia in general. Um, Shannon moved the restaurant to the city and and then in 2011 to its current home on level 55 of the Rialto Towers. There was no way to do this deep dive into Voudemont without speaking to the man himself. Shannon Bennett, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thanks, Danny. It's great to hear your voice. It's been a while. I know. Well, I was looking back through old interviews that I've done with you over the years in preparation for this. And yeah, we've we've caught up a bunch of times over the years, but not for a while, as you say. Um, just tell us where you are today and um, what you're up to at the moment. Well, I've just uh, come out of the water, uh, been foiling all morning. And I've um, basically just then given the kids a quick bit of brunch. And now I'm up my treehouse, which is my secret little spot, which is also my library. It has a humidifier in here and it's got about five and a half thousand books, mostly my cookbooks I've collected over the years, meeting some amazing chefs and going down to uh, Books for Cooks quite a lot and seeing Tim and the guys down there. Just a bit of an addiction that's sort of uh, not, it hasn't given up yet. I, I think I still keep buying a lot of cookbooks. So I've got a bit more room here anyway, but this is a nice little hiding spot for me uh, to talk to you. Yeah. So, I mean, you have grew up in Melbourne, lived here for many years, obviously spent some time in Europe, um, training up, schooling up, getting inspired. But you, you've you um, yeah, been living in Byron for a while now. What's what's it like for you to be away from the big smoke and up in, up in the treehouse? Well, this was always my uh, place of happiness uh, away from the stove. I've um, had property up here since 2009 and I... Um, I'd always envisaged that I would live here full time when and uh, if I was able with the, with the children, um, particularly schools have got so much better around here now. So I, I made that decision uh, whilst I was actually still uh, working in the view group at about 2016 and uh, then would commute back during the week because it's pretty easy to get down and commute from the Gold Coast and Ballina airports. And um, I get the best of, uh, best of both worlds. I, I get the sunshine, I get the ocean, um, get nature, uh, really good uh, bunch of friends up here. Most of them relocated from Melbourne have come up here over the years and met some new and amazing friends up here as well. So it's just um, it's just a wonderful sort of transition from coming in an intense, pressurised environment of a kitchen in in. Melbourne, which Melbourne obviously holds its food and restaurants quite um, highly, and it's good to just escape it. And uh, I've really enjoyed it, particularly over the lockdown period and uh, you know a few traumatic pe- uh, periods in my life. This has been really great. Um, I'd love to get back into the mindset of the Shannon Bennett who founded Voudemont, um back at the beginning of this century, which we're stepping through at a, at a quick pace. Um, tell us, tell us, like, take us inside your world at that time. Well, it's actually quite funny you say that because I've just been out foiling with a guy that uh, his name's David Truen. And he had a, uh, a digital company called DT Design. He designed the first website for Butamon for me. And we were just out there in the water then, sitting in the water on our boards and having a chat. And um, he asked me, you know, I miss those days in Carlton because he saw that, the rawness, and had such a good time. Uh, but at the time, I didn't realize I was having such a good time, if that makes sense. I, I just felt I was, it was incredibly intense every day coming in. Uh, wanting to create perfection, but also wanting to learn and evolve because I was only 24 and I still hadn't really completed my cooking apprenticeship in many ways in my eyes. And and so I was learning, evolving, teaching, um, trying to give an understanding to customers, trying to get an understanding off customers what they wanted. And it was just a exciting, tumultuous washing machine of intensity 
um, and excitement and adrenaline for the first two or three years. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I get the feeling you're almost, you you were the storm, but you were also at the eye of a storm because I feel like you brought with you these intense kitchens from London, like, well, from the UK, John Burton Race and Marco Pierre White, just like really, um, I remember speaking to you, I reckon it was maybe 2004 and, and you spoke about the hard hardness of those kitchens and just you know the the maelstrom the shouting the pressure the hours um it was almost you spoke of it almost as like you were being forged in in fire and I think you definitely brought some of that back to Melbourne and I spoke to a lot of chefs you know over the years who would also speak of that your kitchen is very hard um uh, but they always felt that they were learning I mean what was it like to be <laughs> to be that storm but also creating this storm around you? Well, it was good having, like, John Burton Race was the complete opposite of Marco Pierre White. John Burton Race was intense, uh, a lot of shouting, but also very um, warm and endearing after the intensity. And then Marco was incredible at being actually quite calm, but still at the same time incredibly intense. And so I got to see two different sides of the coin who were both striving for perfection. And Marco had already succeeded in perfection, really. He had just got his three stars and I, I went to join the team. And it was um, it was a, a nice calmness in there. And then going to work for Alan DeCasse, there was even another three notches down in calmness. And if anything, quite boring for me. So when I came back to uh, Melbourne, um, and that's no disrespect to Alan DeCasse because the food was incredible, but it to get that consistency, menus don't change, creativity takes place in another kitchen and then that gets transferred out and we were just the executioners of the food uh, or curators, I suppose, and that's what I learned from his kitchen. But coming back to Melbourne, I just felt that um, a lot of the chefs that were there were all very um, uh, wanting more knowledge, wanting more excitement um, and Melbourne was ready to step up a couple of notches again with a lot of new chefs and a lot of new kitchens. You had Andrew McConnell. Um, you had Donovan Cook, so you had a, a lot, uh, a lot of chefs with expectations that Melbourne was on the rise when it came to food. So I sort of jumped into that with a fair bit of immaturity at, at times, where I wanted to um, try and jump straight into what they were doing, like Estes Dest, and it takes time. You evolve. You got it, it, menus take six, twelve months to evolve. So there was a lot of um, frustration in the kitchen from me at times because my expectations were that a lot of chefs had already had some level of training to what I'd had. And they hadn't, simply as that, didn't have the opportunity. And um, there was no internet then. There was You just got your information of where these great restaurants were through books. So I, I, I came frustrated at times into the kitchen, with, yet all of these guys that came to work for me, these, these team of chefs were all amazing people that I get along with still to this day. Some of them um, may not say the same because the level of intensity – that they worked under um, becomes personal, particularly to them. Um, I was able to switch off straight after um, a service. And for me, I love the fact that of that intensity and then switch off and then we all go for a drink on a Saturday night. And um, But it, it is an incredible big ask for a 21 or 22-year-old to be working in, with that intensity and creativity and, and fast pace and, um, and not – realize where the horizon is it's 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 really difficult some of the chefs that were working for me aren't chefs anymore they're electricians and plumbers and i think that i sort of made them realize how hard if you want your own restaurant and you want to succeed to get to number one how hard and intense it can be it's so interesting you use that word horizon shannon because i feel like you know the name view demand uh view of the world um it, it sort of speaks to that right from the beginning i mean can you talk about where you, what your ambitions were and how the name ties into that? Um, yeah, my, my ambitions were I, I wanted to be probably like uh, a cross between Marco and John Burton Race. I wanted, I wanted their exciting lifestyle. Um, uh, I, want, I wanted their satisfaction in their, in their creativity followed by dissatisfaction and I, I, the energy that, that happens when you go home satisfied and then you wake up dissatisfied and wanting to get back up straight out of bed at 6am to go back into the kitchen and tossing and turning from probably 5am thinking, you know, what can I do better today? And I, that, that's what I wanted. And I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to please people. 
but that's that was the number one thing for me was just seeing smiles on people's faces and um i think that's the great thing about hospitality in general is just being able to put a smile and a, a sense of aspiration on someone's face um from all walks of life someone that's saved up for uh, an experience at a restaurant for 12 months and seeing them smile and walk away and shake your hand and saying well thank you so much to the disappointment of someone not being pleased um and then the ups and downs of that to then someone famous coming into your restaurant that you admire um, saying that it's the best experience they've ever ever had to the next day someone saying I didn't enjoy it again <laughs> you know like that that that's uh, that ride is something that you just want to strive for and I think the horizon comes about when you see the fact that um, you're never going to get it to perfection you're never going to get it right you're never going to be able to please everyone but just keep pushing and don't Take it personal when someone doesn't enjoy the experience. Um, try your best, but don't destroy it or don't change it for the sake of one person out of ten that didn't enjoy it. Yeah, I feel like that has been something that you've um, probably thought about a lot over the years is what to listen to and what to let slide off you. I think there was – I remember a dish um, at Carlton – I think it was like there was scallops and there was ginger or something and perhaps it was a dish that you brought with you from Europe or the, the idea from Europe, but there were it just didn't land in Melbourne in the same way. Um, I don't know if you remember that particular dish. but do I do, you, I do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, was there a frustration in the Australian audience? Like did you feel like you had to temper some of the dishes or, you know, speak about that? Yeah, yeah, I think over time. Yeah, over time, I think, look, the uh, the dish you're talking about was a really simple dish with ginger sauce that um, I got off John Burton Race. And, um, but the, the simplicity of it had a lot of complexity in the sauce and using all the scallop trimmings. But you needed fresh scallops, to live scallops in your kitchen to, to achieve it. And I just, in the end, uh, was getting these very, very small scallops that are actually beautiful tasting. But um, I was literally serving them raw. And um, people just didn't like uh, a raw scallop. So I, I moved to a, a Canadian imported scallop and I hated it um, using them. And But people liked it. And so I had to balance uh, balance up the fact that um, I wanted to use local ingredients, but I had to just bring customers along with me slowly and just, just um, balance things out. So I, I tried to my, – my goal was that I'd learnt from both Marco. Marco loved French ingredients and then that drew me to, to go and work in France. And then working in France, I realized that you're a curator of food and that you're a curator of local ingredients. So um, I found a lot of local suppliers were very, very suspicious of chefs. They wanted to work directly with distributors. And I found that baffling because I'd just come from a place that had these intense relationships directly with farmers. And so it took time to build these relationships with, with uh, people in the fishing industry directly people who are growing their own vegetables um the the truffle industry had just started to take off um uh and david blackmore um like it took me a year i remember um steve filetti from moonlight oysters it actually took me more than it took me two years for steve to supply me oysters um and i had to go to his farm twice um up in the clyde river before he'd even consider giving me an oyster and that, 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 so that all that thing sort of baffled me, um, and then I'd get this exciting produce, and then I'd realise, well, my customers aren't even ready for this. They're not. They're not prepared to pay um, nine dollars in two thousand and four for an oyster. Um, you know, and Steve would hand turn all these oysters uh, on the on the leaves, so each one would have a perfect shape. So there was so much intensity that I got to learn from, and and then you'd have Mark Issa going out and basically risking his life every day um, in in the Southern Ocean, going out there and hand spiking um, Ikajimi seafood just with a single line, him and one other guy, and so going out on the boat and seeing what he does and bringing this amazing seafood back, and then it's it's basically oh, maybe at the time I think it was probably oh, twenty nine. Maybe thirty dollars a kilo back in two thousand and three, something like that. And and I was getting seafood from from just distributors who were ten dollars a kilo. But I just I, I couldn't use that seafood anymore. When I realised that the, the quality difference of a piece of fish caught in in a trawler compared to what Mark Ether was producing hand line caught, there was just 
there was just the gap was just too huge. So I had, I sort of made this huge commitment to myself, the restaurant, everything that we are just going to use the best produce. So then there was a transition with, with guests where um, guests, certain guests just didn't get it. Um, and I, I was still learning to use this, this amazing produce and keep it simple, but still uh, tell a story on a plate and show technique on a plate that you couldn't produce at home. And um, I think I sort of all finally sort of clicked probably, yeah, about 2004, I think, where I felt I got into my stride a bit and we got a really good brigade, a lot of people that understood it. We got a really nice balance in the team and uh, started to produce some really interesting food that we took the journey on. I think that's when we changed. We started serving, chefs started serving the food to the guests directly um, themselves. We started with one dish per, per menu and then we eventually, by the time we got to uh, the new premises in 2005 in the city, we were serving all the dishes basically to guests and that was became a really fun part of um, – of the, of, the, of the little gap between the, the guests not understanding what we're doing and what we understood as chefs and what we wanted the guests to, to experience. That's really amazing, Shannon. I reckon it's something I've never properly appreciated about what you were doing because um, I think from the diner point of view, I think you're right. Like we weren't uh, appreciating produce in perhaps the way that we've come to. And it's really interesting to think that, yeah, you were right at the forefront of creating those connections. And then it is about um, – there is there does have to be this demonstration of the value of that, going to that trouble, spending that money, um, not doing too much with the produce, like really letting it shine, but doing, I guess, enough, whether it's around the experience, uh, the way you cook it, the way you present it, that does um, bring the customer on the journey. It's um, really interesting. So I think when I, when you first opened Normanby Chambers and I first went there, I think I was really struck by the experience, definitely by chefs coming to the table, by what you're able to um, view of the kitchen. Uh, but I think it's really only clicked for me now how much it was about the produce. Yeah, yeah, went through each restaurant has a different phase that is brought about by the previous restaurant, what our limitations were, and that's what gave me insight into why we needed to move the restaurant uh, each time. And um, so the first phase was all about the produce being in Carlton. It was an evolution, and, and then our kitchen just didn't really respond to the way that we wanted guests to see what we were doing and how we wanted to interact with them. So um, people loved that restaurant. It was a great little atmosphere, but it just didn't have um, the connection with the kitchen the way we wanted it. So then that Maury Swartz and Callum Fraser, who's an architect, and um, Zahava Allenberg, uh, they, they would uh, come to the restaurant a lot. So they understood what uh, I was trying to tell them about how I would love the restaurant to be designed. And then um, that opportunity came about to move and uh, it was a huge gamble because the restaurant only started to make money 2003 and I literally would put all the profit into a, a separate account and I just kept saving it up and literally I think I got up to about $900,000 uh, in an account where my accountant said to me, oh, you've got you know, a considerable amount, you should invest this and that. And I was like, oh, no, I want to I want to get into another restaurant. So it was very fortunate that Mori basically matched uh, that amount that I'd saved and, and um, he helped me with the fit out we spent at the time. It was about two and a half, three million dollars um, on a new restaurant fit out and got everything that I wanted. I wanted the best cutlery, wanted the rest, the kitchen to be completely open. Um, and then that was about that connection of serving food, uh, giving the guest a real aspirational experience, giving us some, some important kitchen uh, equipment that we needed to start delivering the experience on a, on a higher level. And then that started to change the way I thought because there was uh, environmental issues with what we were doing in the way that the kitchen still had all this very hot equipment um, giving off a lot of heat, like gas, giving off 65% wasted um, fumes into the atmosphere and all these things I started to learn and the amount of power we were using. And, um, and at that stage, I don't think really sustainability was coming into it, but um, I I started to research ideas. I met Yost Backer uh, back in Carlton and Yost and I started talking about ideas. I was learning a lot from him about materials that were uh, not being used in the building industry that, that could change uh, the way we live and the way we operate and the way we work. And then IT as well. I, no one had ever charged a deposit to make a booking. And in Carlton, 
um, it, it wasn't too bad an issue if someone didn't turn up for a table. But for me, when I just spent $3 million on a, on a brand new restaurant and we had a waiting list of maybe 50 or 60 people, literally every night were opened, um, I, I needed to, to make sure that every table was full. So um, it was just would break my heart when a table of four or a table of six just wouldn't show up. In Carlton, we could fill that with walk-ins, people walking past. But when we moved to 430 Little Collins Street, um, we were up the, an end of town that no one would really, everyone thought was derelict, really. The RACV club was re- literally the only thing there, and the Melbourne club or club was close by. That was it. There was nothing else around um, apart from the Mitre Tavern. So it was dead at night. So we didn't get any walk-ins, and we still had a waiting list of sometimes 150 when we moved. So I, I came up with a... Uh, uh, a strategy and a plan, I started charging deposits of $150 uh, for a cancellation fee uh, per, per booking and uh, per person per booking. And there was uproar, absolute uproar. And um, I didn't get any support from any of the other restaurants. I, I thought if we band together and I contacted a few, but no one would do it at the start. But I said, guys, we're doing it. We're doing this. There was a big resistance to my team at first. And I said, uh, Anna Augustine, who was um, my longtime uh, EA and uh, sort of an operational manager in many ways, um, really supported the idea and put a lot of hard work in. And we were the first restaurant in Australia to charge a deposit like a hotel would. And so we borrowed and manipulated some IT off hotel software and started taking credit card uh, deposits. And that, that was, at the time, it could have been safe, don't, don't do it, don't worry, you're riding high, you just one restaurant of the year and you get your three chef sats and all that. And I knew it would create a bit of backlash, but I was like, at that time, I'd already started to get used to my guests and customers and I'm like, it's called the squeaky wheel. 10% will have a whinge about it because they will make three different bookings at three different restaurants and then decide on the day which restaurant they'll go to. And I just don't think that's good enough. I think that you... Um, got to respect restaurants no matter where they are around the world. And if you make a booking, just cancel. Um, give people the opportunity to, to at the restaurant to fill the table. So literally there was only maybe a dozen times where we filled, uh, where we didn't fill that table and we had to charge for that experience. And guess, um, so it affected very, very few customers, but I felt probably as one of my legacies in, in the restaurant industry, that would be probably the big one because now every single restaurant that's of any sort of caliber will will charge a uh, deposit uh, for a booking, and that was a big thing for, that came out of that restaurant. Yeah, it was. I, rem- I remember the uproar. Um, it definitely, yeah, put some noses out of joint. But I mean, yeah, you can see. I suppose you know. I'm also getting the sense of you know what a sort of canny and determined business person you are um where it's like you have to put a value on what you're doing um to sustain it and to help it grow totally totally i think that's crucial that i I respected um every single person that worked in my restaurant from anyone um washing baking patisserie uh cleaning tables uh serving guests uh to greeting guests at the front door we're all a really important cog in the wheel. And I felt that this put a stamp on who we are. And um, and I, I used to liken it when I had to speak to guests directly who were giving my team a hard time. And by the way, this is only a very small, minute percentage of our guests that would do that. Um, and I would do, try and explain to them, would you do that if you bought tickets to the theatre? What, what What's the difference between going to see The Wizard of Oz and buying four tickets? You pay them up front and you turn up for it. And if, the, if you're sick, you can uh, send them to some friends or uh, give them away as a gift or, or, or sell them. Um, so what's the difference between View de Monde and you going to the theatre? And there was no real answer to that other than that they just didn't respect us in the same way that they would um, actors and producers and everyone that was in the theatre. And we were producing the same amount of experience over sometimes even a longer period of time and working our butts off for that. So um, it sort of put all that into perspective and I think then Tetsuya was the second restaurant. Tets uh, called me up uh, about six months into it, and I think there was an article because I got taken to the ACCC by a, by a guest, a, a very well-known author. Um, I won't name her, but um, she took me to the ACCC over it, and I said, well, let's, let's sort this out once and for all. So the ACCC did a three-month investigation and found that we were well within our rights to do what we were doing. 
<laughs> wow, Shannon, that's um, that's pretty intense. I mean, what is it that's that's in you that allows you to be so bullshit, like right from the beginning, and to just um, like take things to the brink all along the way? Um, believe, just believe in yourself, and um, plan really well, and uh, enjoy what you do, and realize that you don't take yourself too seriously. So you don't go home stressed about it um, and you are able to switch off when you're not in the kitchen environment. And I think that I learned to do that as I sort of got older and a bit more mature. And I think by this age, what was I, I was probably hitting close to 30 at this age. Uh, and so I felt that I'd had a fair bit of hours under my wings and I was um, experienced and I had some really good people around me. I, you, you're, not on, you're not in this alone. You're, you're in this as a team. And I had some fantastic people around me. So uh, that made it really easy. Made it, we, we, were, we were flying along, doing some great stuff, but enjoying it. And yeah, sure, there was very intense moments and cr- creative people always have intense moments and always have disagreements. And, but at the end of the day, looking back on that uh, period of my life, um, you are certainly not alone. You, you've got this incredible team backing you uh, uh, giving ideas and we had in, intense periods of great communication where we would be sitting down once, twice a week and just planning for two hours at a time and sketching and doing ideas and um, how can we do things better and constantly. And I think that was probably some one regret at the same time when we won all those Restaurant of the Year awards and stuff like that. I, the team enjoyed it immensely, but I um, – I actually uh, filled myself with anxiety most of the time when we win those awards because I was like, shit, we have to do this again next year. And uh, that was probably the only thing that I probably should have enjoyed more was those periods of success where you just actually switch off for you know, 12 hours and, um, and, and pat yourself on the back and have a good time and, and then worry about repeating it again a week later when you have to. I remember speaking to you, um, I don't know, some years ago and you said – uh, let's just talk, I'm talking about culture and all the work that goes into it. You talked about chefs that work 38 hours a week and that basically that's just working part-time. I mean, how do you reflect on um, those punishing hours that you did yourself and that, you know, the teams, teams, you know, everyone did really? Um, how do you reflect on it now? You know, the restaurant's open four days a week, chefs are clocking off after 40 hours. Um, what do you think is gained by that? But what also do you think might be lost? I think just chefs uh, just become one dimensional. I, I, I feel for the fact that you, when you're, I mean, it's not a job. And I think that it's, I always said to everyone that worked to me, we it's a young person's job. I used to give advice uh, by the side. I, I encouraged everyone to get a WESET uh, level two, level three. If you're a chef, I said, absorb as much knowledge as you can because this is a young person's game. And by the time you're in your 30s, you need to be thinking about your own restaurant at the latest. And so I felt um, that I had reflected on my journey and I still reflect on it now. But for me, my, my journey was as much knowledge as quickly as I can. And um, at, at the age of 15, I left school. I, I did an apprenticeship at the Grand Hyatt Melbourne as soon as I could, I was in the bookstore every day, writing down addresses of Michelin star restaurants and writing to them. And I and I went straight overseas, uh, not knowing what even the restaurants looked like. There was no photos, nothing. So no internet uh, back then. So for me, um, I, I look at that and I say, that is the perfect formula, in my opinion, to absorb as much as you can, quickly as you can, while you've got the energy. And then a 40-hour week is, is, is great when you've uh, got family and you've got kids and you should be complete by then. But if you're an apprentice, 40 hours a week is not enough. It is simply not enough to learn in a three-year period to become a chef. Um, And particularly how restaurants now don't really change their menu a lot. I mean, a a menu now sits on uh, on the, the creative side of things maybe for three, four months before it gets changed in most places. And so chefs aren't learning a huge, they're doing, they're coming in, they're doing the same thing. They're not getting bored because they're only doing it for 40 hours. Um, and I feel there's got to be a, a, a bit more of a shift. Unless people are prepared to pay $500 a head for a meal um, consistently um, or it becomes restaurants become elitist again. I think that Melbourne showed in the early 2000s and, the, and, the, and then in the 90s that re- dining wasn't elitist. It was for everyone. 
but yes, people work their absolute butts off to do it. So there's good and bad in in how restaurants operate, um, but at the same time, I, I just feel that young chefs is this going to affect us in ten years when they're ready to their home of their own restaurant? Do they have the knowledge? to back up their own creative ideas uh, to be able to deliver really interesting world-class experiences. Um, it's it's definitely a conundrum. I mean, uh, you know, I've spoken to a lot of owners or, you know, senior chefs who have really mixed feelings about um, sending young chefs home when they've done their hours. I mean, the costs are so tight. It's like you can't afford to keep them on, but nor are you allowed to have them there just like standing at your side learning something. I mean, what advice would you give for a young chef who wants to learn but just simply isn't able to in the current employment landscape? Well, speak up. Speak up on social media. Um, Stand up for your own rights to be able to learn and and stand up for – who you are as a person and you're creative. You should be allowed to just um, do an extra 10 hours if you want to learn, as long as you're not being taken advantage of and you're being shown things. I think that's that's the crucial thing that happens is that um, young people working 60, 70 hours a week shouldn't be taken advantage of. There's got to be the horizon. You've got to be able to see that you're learning. Um, you're not just doing the same thing repetitively, you know, month after month. But you're learning to bake bread. You're learning uh, patisserie. You're learning to to cook a, a, a beautiful piece of kangaroo. You're doing these different things, and I, I think that's that's part and parcel of of being a being able to be a chef. Get rid of the squeaky wheel. Most people, ninety percent of the people out there, would totally agree with what you and I are saying. What other opinions from other restaurateurs? It's just this um, champagne socialist that sit on social media. They just love having a crack at each other. Don't ignore that. Ignore it. It's it's called fuck the noise. Uh, ignore it because it's it is. It's just a noise. Um, most people out there are really logical. They want to people to succeed. The only way you're going to succeed is with knowledge. I think on that though, one change in in what's there now is that the internet gives young chefs a huge source of knowledge um, if they can grasp it. They can can see from what's real and what's not real. Like Instagram is not real. Like what's on there, you know, from a perspective of all these food bloggers cooking dishes at home and whatever and seeing it cut all together, there's a lot of uh, probably three hours of hard work sitting in behind that 15 minutes of footage. So, but there is some learning and absorption of knowledge on, on the internet that can replace some of the time that you've missed now in the kitchen. But there's nothing better than... Your head chef saying to you, "Hey, you can jump on the on the meat section with me tonight, and uh, come come and come and do some cooking, and I'll watch over your shoulder." I mean, and that's in your own time. And how else are you going to be able to do that without not affecting the quality of, the, of a guest? So you can't just throw a young chef uh, on onto the stove and get them to cook one night. And nor should the the owner of that restaurant have to subsidise and lose money. In training someone, that's that's not what it's about. It should be there should be a balance. A restaurateur should be able to make money. He's entitled to it. He shouldn't feel guilty about that. He should be able to make fifteen percent profit. Other businesses do it. Businesses make twenty percent return. You should be entitled to do that. Don't feel embarrassed about it. Um, don't worry about the champagne socialists who are saying to you, you, you this and that. Like um, we should be celebrating success out there. We're celebrating people who are really good at what they do. Um, and there's some fantastic creative restaurateurs out there. I, I mean, I can hear the champagne socialists as well. And I don't know, I feel like perhaps sometimes I am one. Um, but uh, I think it is. it does have to come back to uh, are you as a champagne socialist then prepared to pay $500 for dinner? Because if you want that young chef to be paid for standing there making mistakes, then it, the, the, the price of dining just does have to increase. Yeah, I, I think it's got to be fine and medium. I think we've got to get rid of the hysteria and 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 really sit down. Government of, I mean, we just need a good leader in government. We, we need to go back to the days of Hawke, Keating and, and Howard. They were the three greatest leaders we've had in my era. We need to be able to go back, talk to some decent leader at the top and have a really uh, you know, fruitful discussion, debate and find a medium. Like, you know, whether it's, 
45 hours or 50 hours. Maybe, you know, with the way that modern technology is, maybe it's an extra five hours is, is enough for a young person to learn. Um, and what, what's happening now, Danny, is that everyone forgets about it, but all the se- successful people that have been in the industry a long time, one, they're stuck in the industry doing the same thing longer now because obviously what's happened is all the young people that aren't allowed to do extra hours, it's now put upon the, uh, the more experienced people who are allowed under the working conditions and the laws to work longer hours are filling in that void mostly. Um, and they're working harder than they ever have in their life. And I've always had this thing, you should work hard when you're younger and as you get older, you should be able to lessen the workload. You should be able to enjoy it more and add the experience replaces the actual boots on the ground. And it's actually the opposite now. Managers in restaurants are working as harder than ever, filling the voids that they have to to try and keep their labour costs balanced. So they're working their absolute butts off. And it's, it's, that's, that's just a given. Is give and take, and that's what's happening. And a lot of owners are basically grinding themselves into the ground. Um, they are. So, all right, we could solve the world for another few hours, but I want to. I want to get your perspective on the move to Rialto. Uh, Fifty floors up, um, incredibly ambitious. Uh, you know, it's still the. It feels like it was a fulfilment of something when you really do have that vue de monde up there. Um, tell us about that move and what it meant to you. Well, it sort of stemmed, I think, first of all, uh, I have to thank Lorenz Grollo. Lorenz came to see me. I laughed. I said, there's no chance. Like, Because uh, A.A. Gill at the time had just come out with a review from somewhere that I'd read. And A.A. Gill, he, he, Adrian said that uh, it was anything that revolves or has a view um, is obviously just not even worth going to in terms of a restaurant. <laughs> and I just, and so it just stuck in my head. And then, he mentioned something as he was walking out, and he said, look, you know, it's sort of the Ayers Rock of Melbourne, uh, Rialto. And then I just – it sort of planted a seed in the back of my head, and then everything that I was doing in the kitchen at Normie Chambers, I said, oh, I could do this so much better with a new kitchen. I could do – I learned about all this new technology coming on, particularly induction. Induction technology um, was just just changing. I, I'd done a, a couple of weeks at Mark Verra's restaurant, in uh, Lake Ansi and I was blown away by some of the technology there with the induction and so then I started researching all these new bits of equipment and I looked at things that I wanted to do better I'd learnt and I was I, I don't know if you recall but about 2009 we're starting to talk about climate change we're, we're talking about um, you know efficiency in what we do and so I was like well let's let's talk about climate change and let's talk about the positives of, of uh, moving towards being logical and using lights that have that use less energy and um, having materials that don't have any toxins in them and and, and, and an environment for the chefs that um, is is so much better working environment because chefs in 2010 I think it was that uh, the census came out or whatever we had um, the second worst working conditions um, in Australia in any in any industry and that we had the a death rate I think it was number three. Uh, one of the, um, the highest young death rates. And I, I was like, this is just nuts. So I felt open kitchen, not breathing any toxins, get rid of all gas, all natural gas gone, um, just using uh, electricity and just using charcoal where you needed to to create um, uh, smoke flavours and what have you. So that's when I started to design a kitchen and then I went back to Lorenz and Lorenz was incredibly generous, like in terms of the way that, he supported me going up there. You're talking, it was a $10 million move to, to move Vudemond up on to, you know, like just in, in, in this sort of restaurant in the sky. And I was just like, okay, we have to get everything up this lift. Um, we just, this is going to take a, a, a fair bit of doing. And so um, I, risked, I risked a lot. I, I mortgaged my house. And uh, and Lorenz gave me an, a, a considerable amount of rent-free period, and I just went for it. And I just decided to reinvent what I thought restaurants should be. And I wanted the dining room to have only uh, capacity for 38 people, and I wanted to go back to when Melbourne was marvellous uh, in the 1860s and the gold rush. And Melbourne was one of the most populous city in the world. Uh, I think we had over a million people, the population at the time, which was 
comparable at that time to other major large cities around the world. We also had more wealth coming into Melbourne than any other place on the planet. There was 90 tonnes of gold a year coming out of the gold fields, and people were spending it in Melbourne. The Windsor Hotel had opened, um, the first five-star hotel of its type. Um, we had the uh, Criterion Hotel in, in Collins Street opened, where the ANZ Bank is now, and the, and the history of the cocktail started in, in Melbourne. We even had ice ships delivering ice cr- crossing uh, the Pacific Ocean from America, delivering ice from Montana. And um, so I wanted to recreate that. And I wanted to, I'd I'd spent a fair bit of time in Japan prior, looking at um, how they make their own ice. I wanted to do a really great bar. I felt that event spaces were really important in those days too, really important to supplement the restaurant with only 38 seats in it. Um, And I wanted to use local artisans. So I used the guys from the captains of industry uh, to do, Tal did the tables. He was a cobbler, so I made all the tables out of leather, like they used to do in in the um, the Gold Rush era. I used, I made the, the the entire site was made out of magnesium oxide board, which is fireproof and waterproof. Uh, yeah, no gas, no open flames. Kitchen completely open, so we shared the same air conditioning systems as as the restaurant. Uh, technology called the ventilated ceiling which then didn't have extraction, so we didn't have these noise buzzing in our ears all the time in the kitchen. And it had, and the kitchen had much more space. The kitchen was 225 square metres. And I, all the latest technology in there at the time, um, and I just and then I wanted that interaction that there was no line between the kitchen and the dining room. So guests could come into the kitchen and feel comfortable, and chefs could come out and serve the food. That was all really important. And... Um, it, it just, there was an intense amount of time. I really, the team that were with me, Corey Campbell and, and Hugh had just joined. Hugh Allen uh, was an apprentice. He'd just come from Rockpool. And I think Hugh was only 16, maybe he was 15. I, he was super, super young. And um, he joined the team. We're great, great people. And, um, and then we sort of just pressed the reset button again on what the food was going to be. And I gave Corey a lot of uh, license to be involved in the food. And I then decided that I would uh, concentrate on Louis Bar, making a work uh, with a guy named Sebastian Reben on the on the cocktails and the team that he had behind him. Some really great people uh, joining our team, and you know, forever grateful and thankful for that team working their absolute butts off. But hopefully, they've all got their own story that they've taken away from that that they're able to adapt and the learning that they've been able to uh, take from that to then make their own restaurant or make their own business and, and see quite a raw period in my life where I left everything on the table um, for everyone to see how important this restaurant was for me and, and the energy that uh, needed to create a pl- place like that, an experience like that. And um, it was incredible fun. And then the wine list, you know, putting $2.5 million into the wine list and trying to make it the best I can and, and getting on guys like uh, Dorian and Carlos, um, who were so ambitious and wanting to become master sommeliers and uh, promoting those guys so they they could do it. Um, where you know, them those guys only having to work thirty five hours a week and then studying thirty five hours a week and um, and then seeing them both pass their exams was an amazing feeling and and all the chefs being inspired by that and all the young waiters and barmen being inspired and, and doing their wesset. You know, some of the guys in the kitchen now have level threes. Um, which is amazing, and um, hopefully that's created a culture that will just continue. Yeah, well, definitely. Um, I mean, the Viewdemont alumni a list of alumni is, is extraordinary. So many people have gone on to do amazing things. I suppose I do get this impression listening to you of um, this sense of possibility that was created. Uh, that you know, the horizon was wherever you wanted to place it, um, and you could keep keep striving. I, a, I interviewed Lorenz Grollo not long after the move, and um, so the owner of the Rialto, and he taught, he said um, it's quite endearing for someone to go through a massive reinvention, to step out of their comfort zone, to spend millions of dollars. He's taken a massive risk for his business, his profile and his credibility, but he's made it work. Um, so th- I guess there was there was certainly, you know, you, you stretch yourself, but there were moments of vindication along the way. Um, but then, yeah, this horizon that's moving ever onward. Um, Shannon, we could speak for hours, but um, there's 
probably a couple of things that I still do want to touch on. One is how do you let all this go? Uh, well, you sort of – that's probably uh, – oh, like it's it's yin and yang, but I, when you have children, um, I mean, a different, different you comes about and I feel that um, – it, it, around about 2017, my, my children really needed me um, more than ever. So I, um, I, the decision was actually really easy. I just, I, I felt it wasn't even really a decision. I, I think I had a conversation with uh, Hugh. Hugh was overseas. I said to Hugh, "Look, things are sort of changing here pretty swiftly. I want you to come back, and I want to train you to be the head chef here." And um, at the time, I'd already had another head chef in the kitchen and um, he was – I just told him straight out that I just don't think you're going to be the person that could independently at this stage in your career be the one that um, would take the kitchen over. I just think this demands a transition for you. I need someone young who sees – is comfortable enough to be able to um, live in my shadow for a little bit and then step out of it. And um, I was going through all that stage – which made things a lot easier for me where Hugh was like, um, yeah, I, I'll give that a go. I don't know if I can succeed, but I'll, I'll give it a go. And I said, look, I instinct told me years ago that you are the one mate. And, um, as soon as I got him in the kitchen, um, it's one of those times again, where you, where you, where you, you know, you're charging people uh, cancellation fees. It was sort of that where I had to stick to my guns where I literally, I reckon I had maybe 50% of the people backing me and 50% people saying you're an idiot. <laughs> and um, I was like, I don't care what you think. Um, I know I'm going. This is this is a captain's call, and I know what the right decision is. And um, yeah, we copped a little bit. Um, even like food critics, it was laughable. Some some food critics came in and were having a crack because of you know who's just taken over the kitchen. Oh, we'll drop a chef's hat. We'll drop this. You can do whatever you want. I know that guess straight away as soon as Hugh takes this kitchen over, um, it won't matter. Um, straight away, he'll continue the legacy, and his food will evolve, and his ideas have evolved, and they've separated themselves now from where the food was in 2018 and 2019, and he's really making a name for himself, and that made things a hell of a lot easier for me because there would be I, I can't understand chefs and their it's it's like idiocy like they're, they're, in terms of why wouldn't you want to leave your restaurant and hand the keys to someone else and the name stays there just because you've decided, and rightly so, that you, you're burnt out or you've had enough and you're not enjoying it in the morning when you're getting up in the morning. You don't want to go and cook all day. Well, there's nothing wrong with saying that and still the restaurant keeps going. I had too many people that had worked too hard um, and including Lorenz that deserve better than that. So you need a transition. And for the people that had bought the restaurant, um, that bought the restaurant group off me, I had a great relationship with them. I still have a great relationship with them. And contrary to what people were saying in newspapers and everything about me, it's just crazy. But um, I, I had an obligation to so many people to make sure that Hugh had the best support. I'd chosen him. I knew that he could do it. And that's all. And that was so from going away, looking after my kids full time and having um, Hugh in the, in the background, I didn't really feel like that. I was missing, I had separation anxiety because I was still always mentoring him. There was still phone calls going on. There was still times where I was sitting with him and talking to him and encouraging him. And um, I've just enjoyed that journey from afar. And it's been great. Yeah, that's really amazing. Well, my, my other question was going to be, what was it that you saw in Hugh um, that made you think he was the one? But I think I think you've answered that. Um so let me ask you something else. You mentioned um, at the beginning of our chat that you just made your kids brunch. Uh, what did you make for them? Oh, you'd be embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> no, it's just, um, look, my, my kids are all, I've got two vegetarians. I've got so many varied tastes, but they are sort of- Bloody dietaries. Into, I know, I know, I know. That's what it is. It's, uh, thank God, I've got, I've got no one who's developed any allergies yet, uh, which is good. But um, look, t today is some baguette with some roast chicken and some avocado. Uh, so a, a pretty simple. But I will let you in on a little secret. I, I don't know um, if you can probably get this in the rest of Australia, but we have two Asian grocery stores here, one in Bangalore, one in the centre of Byron called Red Ginger. We also have the Bay Grocer, which is amazing. And they're selling these spice kits, which are just dry spices, but they basically 
uh, different um, different types of curries. And I got the butter chicken uh, curry uh, mix the other day. And last night I made it uh, with a dairy-free option, just using organic coconut cream. And my, my kids, for the first time ever, I did a little lentil and sweet potato version of it. And I did the, the chicken version, which was dairy-free. And I've never seen it before in my life, but actually there was no leftovers. It was, they ate everything with some nice steamed brown rice that had some curry leaves and some lime leaves in it and a bit of crushed garlic and ginger and uh, and a little salad of just some uh, fermented onions and a little bit of fresh tomato out of the garden and some fresh cucumbers and, um, and, and yeah, nothing left. So I'm sort of quite proud of myself that I might be turning a corner and that my kids, not just my <laughs> older kids, they might start enjoying my cooking because I've got the worst critics in the world up here. Yeah, they're very tough and they don't mind telling you when something's not to their liking. So, uh, Shannon, um, one of the first times that I interviewed you, I think it was 2004, and you were also doing roast chicken, but it was for your dog, Buck, uh, uh, I think a husky, do you remember that? And yes, you bought, yes. You yes. said you bought her a chicken every week and you basically shared it with the dog during the week. So, you know, the more things change. <laughs> yes, yes. I know. I actually miss Buck. I got a portrait painted by Peter Wenger of, of Buck back in the day and uh, proudly uh, in our kitchen. And I look, I, um, yeah, I've taken over. I had dogs. I've always had animals in my life because I think they give you a really lovely balance when you get the intensity from kitchen and you see how vulnerable animals are and how we need to look after them. And and I think children are the same. And I think that that also goes back to my answer of, you know, how hard was the decision to leave the kitchen. And I think that when kids are calling you, um, you run. And I think that um, a lot of my kids in, in, were in the kitchen at the time as well. And I felt that I was outgrowing that and they were outgrowing me. So vulnerability is a big thing and um, it really pulls on the, on the, on the heartstrings uh, when, you, when you're growing up, whether it's an animal, whether it's a, an apprentice or whether it's your own child. And um, it, it makes us all human and makes us realise how good life is. Love it, Shannon. Um, thank you so much for spending the time to chat to us today and being part of this, um, which I hope, hope it'll be a special portrait of Voodamond at this time and its era, but it's great to have the OG talking us through the history. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Danny. Great to talk to you. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.